The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Paul, I don't know what we're doing, but we're here. <laughs> we're going to be talking. Or this is uh-huh. this is one of these episodes, Paul, where we don't have an expert guest with us. We're just going to be recapping some pearls from many different experts that we recently talked to. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great, Matt. That was, uh, for the audience at home, just an abrupt start. I, I don't think I was ready for it, um, but I've emotionally prepared myself. I am now. Um, yeah, and this is this is our... What are we calling these now? Are these Tales from the Curbside? I think side? Tales from the Curbside. If we do just one episode, it's called Triple Distilled. Okay. All very catchy. But in any case, as you say, I'm just going to go ahead without you even asking me and tell you what we typically do, which is we are typically, we are always the internal medicine podcast. That does not change. Typically, we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. This time around, as you mentioned, we are distilling down, even though this is not triple distilled, um, our favorite clinical pearls from three episodes that we particularly liked. And we are, of course, joined by super duper executive producer, uh, Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Beth, how are you? Doing well. And soon soon to be Dr. Garbatelli. Uh, hopefully, we'll be matching in about a month's time or so here. By the time yes. this releases, just a couple weeks. Yes, it's crazy. A scary that time is... in this in the life of a fourth-year med student. It's kind of, you know, ignorance is bliss, I guess. You know, I'm trying to just live in that. You know, I've made my rank list. I feel good about it. Um, so, yeah, I'm trying to enjoy it. You feel good about it. <laughs> well, I don't want to think about the possibilities of, you know, you know how that feels. I'm trying to focus on the positives. <laughs> no, I don't know how folks know the positive feels. I haven't done that since 1987. You're going to do great. The whole The whole audience is sending you good vibes. All right, well, let's let's get into it here. Audience, a reminder that these shorter episodes are not available for CME, but most of our episodes, including the ones uh, that we're recapping here, are available at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for CME credit. And Beth, can you start us off? Wh- which episode are we going to talk about first here? So we're going to kick this off with episode 311 um, on chronic pelvic pain. It was featuring Dr. Georgine Lambu. Um, and it was written and produced um, and hosted with myself um, by uh, Molly Hoyblein. Infographics were bu- done by Edison Jang, and a cover art was by Kate Grant. It was a really good episode. And I'll premise this by saying I think we are just dismissive of pain in folks with uteruses. And we are also dismissive of pain in folks from historically disadvantaged and marginalized groups, you know, for example, fibroids in women who are black. We need to do better. And I think that this episode kind of gave us a good broad overview. What did you think, Matt? I really like the way that she talks about pain. And I was saying to Paul beforehand, Paul, she she spoke about pain from such a, I was surprised that she's primarily a surgeon because she did such a great job of just talking about this holistic approach to pain, educating the patient, working with the patient to target the symptoms. And I thought, I I just really enjoyed hearing her talk about how she does that. It reminded me of my approach to something like chronic back pain or any type of chronic pain that I'm facing. Yeah, I thought the the overall discussion was really nuanced, which I appreciated. And again, we were talking um, 
before we started about how sort of framing the conversation about it's not always just one thing. In fact, it's usually not just one thing. And so sort of how to think about the workup and what's actually causing the pain is not simplistic. And so it requires a a thoughtful, nuanced, multimodal, multidisciplinary approach, which I yeah, I, I agree with you, Matt. It feels feels very internal medicine. Yeah, Beth, she told us there's this network, this web-like yes. network of nerves in the pelvis. So how did she like to group the way that she thinks about symptoms, which is going to talk about how then we lead us into how we then manage the symptoms? Yeah. And I loved this because I think when, you know, I think of a patient coming in with pelvic pain, I'm thinking GU, you know, like that's what you zero in on. But she's, you know, reminding us that the pelvis is a large area of the body containing a lot of stuff. You know, she wants us to have an organ system approach. So, you know, this is very like good bread and butter stuff for me as a med student or like any person who's like in residency and above. So just to be thinking about like, you know, there's more going on just because someone has a pelvis doesn't mean it's just GU. And I loved the visceral-visceral sensitization idea as a way to kind of talk about that with patients. You know, anyone who has a uterus and has had a period knows that this is a thing. Like, you know, suddenly you're on your period and you feel like you have IBS. The nerves are not just one nerve to one organ. There's a spider web. And I liked that. I feel like it's going to help me communicate that to patients for sure. And she had some tips on how she would think about symptoms that the patients give her that make her think it's one more one type of pain than another. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Yes. That was really helpful. She kind of gave some good things to clue in on in the history taking. You know, if a person's is talking about pain with intercourse, is talking about pain that has sort of like a time limiting factor, like it's worse after they're standing or it's worse at the end of the day, that's going to take you down the myofascial pain route. If it's, you know, timing with ovulation, that's taking you down GU. Is there a mood component? Maybe there's something central going on. And then versus peripheral, where you're looking for all those kind of buzzwords, pun intended, radiating pain, sharp, burning, kind of buzzy nerve pain. So, you know, taking that detailed history, not just assuming you need to do a pelvic exam too on these folks. Yeah. And before we get into talking about any sort of the testing or treatment, Remind us her her brief approach. She she talked about trauma informed exam when you are examining these these folks. Yes, yes, and I think that's just like an important way to frame all these discussions. You know, just because somebody's coming to you with chronic pelvic pain doesn't mean they're consenting to a pelvic exam from you. And like framing it that way is helpful just for the patient. So you know, we have an episode on trauma informed care which we'll link to. We've talked about it before, but her approach is just fantastic. You know have that open-ended discussion if this is coming up in in the interview, um, you know, maybe asking a question like, have you ever experienced anything that makes seeing a doctor difficult for you? Um, because sometimes these folks who have chronic pelvic pain or chronic pain in general may have had, you know, traumatic medical experiences. So making sure we're getting ahead of that and being mindful of it. Paul, are you right. doing- I kind of like, I was just going to say, there is actually- Something that really sort of spoke to me that there was almost an intersection between this is sounds so self-important, but I'm, I'm going to roll with it, guys. This intersection between trauma-informed care and like the the symptom-directed physical diagnosis, right? So like the idea we were talking about how I think anytime comes in, someone comes in with pelvic pain, the expectation is like, oh, here we go, time to do a pelvic examination. But really, that's not necessarily warranted. And a lot of the times that's not going to give you the answer. So certainly if there's something that points very GU, there's discharge or there's there's something that seems very sort of specific to that system, then perhaps a pelvic examination is warranted. And I might ask you to sort of talk us through her approach to even that. But a lot of the times that's not even necessary. And you can let the patient know that 
And it's not that you're shortchanging them. You're actually doing the work of that's warranted, but also not traumatizing them at the same time. So I really, I admired that approach. Yeah. And I can't really do justice to the way she walks through the physical exam. I mean, that's something that I'd recommend you listen to the full episode for. But, you know, she walks through the basics of you want to take that patient through every single step, making sure they're okay, telling them where they're in the driver's seat, um, and just, you know, giving them a heads up that they might be feeling pain. One thing that I took away as kind of a good tip was, you know, examining with potentially like a cotton swab to look for hyperalgesia. Like you don't always need to use a speculum. Like if this person's experiencing severe pain and they're giving you that heads up, use a, use a cotton tip instead. And that could be sufficient to give you some information. Yes. One other, one other good tip was that she said, use the word tolerable, not comfortable because yes. it's, it's not going to be yeah. a comfortable exam. And as far as, so I think we should move on to just for interest of time, Diagnostic-wise, she really wasn't ordering much, Paul. Some screening for sexually transmitted infections, urinalysis, pregnancy tests, and a pelvic ultrasound if you're thinking the pelvic organs might be involved. Pretty much in our wheelhouse, right, Paul? Anything yeah. else you yeah, would think was, to, to do? No, no. It was, it was nicely simplistic. I agree with you. There's nothing nothing terribly exotic, which is nice. And and then she said low threshold to refer out if, if they're having prominent GI symptoms to refer to GI or... If you're thinking it's a bladder pain syndrome, for example, you you might refer to urogynecology. And then treatment-wise, Beth, she said pelvic physical therapy is yeah. one of the things, and I think she gave us a link to look for pelvic physical therapists in the area, which we can put in the show notes here. But was there any other medications or other therapies you wanted to highlight? Yeah, like focusing on you know analgesia to the extent that you can. Um, cycle suppression, if you're seeing that there is a connection with, you know, their their cycle, we can use OCPs and, or, or some other, you know, IUD, something else like that to help. Um, yeah, these the are all LARCs, within the wheelhouse. The, the long acting reversible contraception, the the implant or the, uh, the IUD, the hormonal IUDs are, the, I know a lot of the people who do this kind of medicine just really like those because they uh, don't have to remember to take a pill every day. Yes. Absolutely. And she kind of zeroed back on the counseling tip, you know, tell these patients, set the expectations. We may not find an answer. There may be multiple answers. You know, um, it doesn't invalidate their experience of this pain. Yeah. And I think she asked the patient, she said, give me three to six months to start getting you better. And it might even be up to a year before it's going to be a lot better. And But our goal is to make things manageable. And she talked about essentially partnering with the patient, which I think you have to do anytime you have a chronic pain condition. Folks, I love to sleep. It, it is probably my favorite thing to do. As soon as I wake up in the morning, I start to fantasize about going back to bed. And maybe that says something about me or, or maybe it doesn't. But in any case, it's really important to me that I have high quality sleep when I get the chance to do it which is why I'm so thrilled to tell you about Birch mattresses. Birch makes organic, non-toxic mattresses right here in America, and they are shipped straight to your door with no contact delivery, free shipping, free returns, and a 100-night sleep trial. Birch mattresses are made here in America with just three materials sourced straight from nature, organic latex, New Zealand wool, and American steel springs. Birch mattresses are certified organic, and they donate 1% of all sales to the National Forest Foundation, which plants trees in American forests. And they're comfortable, I love my Birch mattress. They sent it to me. Now, as soon as I hit the mattress, I am out like a light. I sleep like a baby until my rude alarm just drags me from my favorite thing in the world to do. And then I start thinking about going back to sleep again on my Birch mattress. So if you're looking for a new mattress, check out birchliving.com slash curb and see what they have to offer you. They have a 25-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. 
They'll pick it up for you if you don't love it, but I'm pretty sure that you will. Birch is giving $200 off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchloving.com slash curb. That's $200 off all mattress orders and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. Well, we should move on because I think the great Dr. Paul Williams, I don't want to block you, Paul. Can you tell Ooh. us about your episode here? Good pun. Uh, yeah, I hate myself for saying it, but speaking of moving, um, <laughs> I, I chose the our constipation episode to review. That's episode number 314. It's number one in your hearts. This is with uh, Zhao Jing, Iris Wang, um, with production, graphics, everything basically produced by the amazing Elena Gibson. We don't pay her enough. She really, <laughs> she, she ran the table on this one, and it was a great episode. And it was a, a marathon episode, too. It... it <laughs> We covered a lot of ground, but I think before we get started, the thing I want to talk about is just how to define what constipation is, because we actually had a nice sideline about whether or not patients are experiencing constipation or just the expectation that they're supposed to be moving their bowels every day. But in any case, when we're talking about constipation, formally, the diagnosis is three or fewer bowel movements per week, and it's chronic when the symptoms persist for more than three consecutive months. And then there's other symptoms that go with it, like uh, decreased frequency, the incomplete emptying or evacuation, which feels like the defecatory problems that we'll get into, changes in consistency. And I, the other point that I, I think that I liked a lot here is we'll, we'll talk about how she takes a history. But even for someone who is not having sort of the, the Bristol stool one and two, if they had previously had softer stools and then they become more firm, that's still a change in consistency that might be constipation for that patient. So that's constipation defined. Before I roll through, because I don't want this to be a monologue, I, I'm wondering, actually, when I start with you, Beth, in terms of some of the history that Dr. Wang does, does anything jump out at you or anything that you find particularly interesting? Well, I really liked the framework of the Ready, Set, Go. I thought she just does a great job talking through pathophysiology. I loved this for the diarrhea episodes as well. Um, but you know, when someone says that they're having upper GI pain postprandially, potentially, don't always think that's just going to be confined to the upper GI area. You know, she, she says because of the gastrocolic reflux, after you have a meal, this can trigger contractions and that can cause pain. So sometimes constipation can be associated with this postprandial pain. And I thought that was helpful and useful. Um, not even that much food can do it. She said, I think 500 calories or something like that, or a small mm -hmm. amount of coffee. And I also liked the idea of, you know, counseling our patients, you know, when you have that feeling of the set, you're in the set phase, your body's telling you to go, go, you know, like we've seen the kids who have this issue and it creates a constipation cycle. We want to break that. So I just thought that was a helpful framework for counseling our patients and also for us, for our lives. My favorite part that she told us about the history taking was this pelvic floor dysfunction or ways to find people who are having this dyssynergy or dyssynergic. Mm -hmm defecation. And she's talked about toilet yoga, Paul, which is just that that's sort of says it all, but these are people who are rocking back and forth. They might have to be straining if they're certainly, if they're manually having to disimpact themselves, that's a bad sign. And that's another way that she said that that can be a sign. And then for women, if they're splinting the back wall of the vagina with their fingers, that, uh, that also makes her think about that. So I never knew to ask about these things, Paul, to to identify pelvic floor dysfunction, but that is an important line of history to ask about. Yeah, it's, and she loves pelvic floor dysfunction because, first of all, you can treat it, but then also a, a lot of her workup is aimed towards that. I feel like my framework prior to this episode in terms of thinking about constipation was mostly the tr slow transit or sort of secondary cause variety, and I didn't have a whole lot of much else to really think about, but it, it's the... 
the rectal evacuation, pelvic floor dysfunction stuff is fairly common. And a lot of her history is really devoted to actually trying to, to tease out whether that's the, the root cause or not. So all this stuff like straining and the toilet yoga and the, the manual evacuation, all that is the dysynergy, um, which happily we can actually address a lot of the time. Right. And the, the buckets that she talked about, there's the normal transit constipation. See, and you brought the buckets up in the episode, too. <laughs> you can't help yourself. I'm doing it on purpose. <laughs> so these buckets, Sorry, the, 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 these buckets, a normal transit, Paul, that was the one with the function. If you, if you rule everything else out, then you can call this IBS or functional uh, constipation versus the slow transit. That's one. In, in order to call someone slow transit, you first have to rule out that they have the, like you said, the, the dyssynergic defecation and you, cause you would have done manometry and other things before you even get to get to that point. So the, the three buckets, the normal transit, slow transit, and then the defecatory disorders and secondary causes, Paul, how do you think about those? Yeah, I think the obvious ones are, are medications, um, and, you know, specifically opioids sort of springs right to mind, but there's plenty that do it. She mentioned if you start someone on iron supplementation, a very common scenario, it's not unusual to just constipate the living crap out of someone, so to speak. Um, I feel like I just channeled Stuart for a hot minute there. <laughs> other other things like neurologic uh, concerns can certainly um, can be a secondary cause. So she mentioned that the constipation that comes with uh, Parkinson's can actually be seen before some of the other symptoms are. So there's plenty of other neurologic issues that could also cause constipation. Electrolyte abnormalities. So um, abnormal calcium levels, obviously hypothyroidism, I think is one that we always think of in terms of eventual yeah. causes. Not that I've ever fixed anyone's constipation by <laughs> fixing a, a TSH, but it, it'd be nice. Um, so those, internal those medicine, think, we love a TSA. We yeah, love a TSA, folks. Don't we, folks? You love to see and, it. And I should mention, Paul, that the three buckets I was talking about were for primary primary causes. The secondary causes are what we're in now. That's its own yes bucket. I don't know, Paul. It, we don't. I mean, you don't. You don't have to do this one. <laughs> And then she mentioned, we didn't mention this in, in terms of the history because I think we all do a good job of this, but if someone has significant pain with moving their bowels, if they're having bleeding, if they have sort of pencil caliber stools, the other worrisome secondary cause of constipation would be like a mass or malignancy. Right. So weight loss, that, would that, be also that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the workup, this is, I, I was glad to know that we are counseling people about hydration, fiber intake, and trying some just general laxatives that any good internist would be comfortable prescribing. That is perfectly fine. We don't have to jump right to, to manometry, Paul, which I was glad to know. But what if what if the the first line stuff that most primary care people are doing doesn't work, then what what's the patient in store for? Yeah. So, I mean, realistically, we have to say that this means they'll be going to gastroenterology for a lot of these things. I don't think a lot of internists will be ordering things like manometry or balloon expulsion testing, but basically they'll be doing formal testing for the, the defecatory disorder. So the interrectal testing can include things like manometry, can include the balloon expulsion test where they actually inflate a balloon with, I think, 50 cc's, I believe they said, of normal saline, and then time how long it takes the patient to expel it. In certain specialty centers, they can even do uh, rectal sensitivity testing where they see how much distension it actually takes to for the patient to perceive it. And that can also be helpful in terms of the workup. And if that stuff doesn't help you, there is actual um, imaging that I have never actually seen in practicality, but I'm also not a gastroenterologist, right. but you can do defecography to actually visualize what their what their defecatory function looks like. Yeah. And then if that if that is all, if that's abnormal, then you've probably identified some sort of dyssynergy, right? But if it's normal, you might proceed to a SITS marker study or some sort of transit time where you're measuring transit time to diagnose slow transit. And then if that's negative, then you say, oh yeah, this is IBS, this is functional. But 
most patients don't get to that point because most patients get better with just some of the simple lifestyle stuff and laxatives was was my take home. Yeah, it's I, I feel like I, I have personally rarely seen things get to this point where we're actually all the way doing to clonic transit. We should say SITS marker, I think, is a trademark, but where it's basically these radio opaque markers that the patient ingests, and then you actually watch them transit through the colon over a couple of days, which is also fascinating. But yeah, that's right. It's, I think a lot of the times you can probably figure it out before you actually get to this point, and hopefully you're able to help the patients by then. And how do you think about the approach to management, Paul? I mean, like, let's say someone wanted to eat kiwis. Should they be eating them with or without the skin? <laughs> Just I, so I it's in three episodes. Yeah, no, I, I, you're, we're going to get it in four. Skin. <laughs> skip, skip the skins, you lunatics. Um, two kiwis or... Or four prunes, you know, that that was also in the paper. We forget about the prunes because it's just not as interesting as a kiwi, I guess. But yeah, there are food options that are, are just as good as <laughs> some of the medications we prescribe. So so point being fiber being first-line therapy. Other The backbone of, of therapy also includes the osmotic laxatives, so the polyethylene glycol or milk of mag. Um, and then, Matt, we were talking offline. Uh, Iris had some strong feelings about laxulose. Do you remember what she was talking about? She doesn't like lactulose because it's no better than things like PEG, polyethylene glycol, milk of mag, and it's expensive and it causes a lot of gas formations. There's, so it's expensive and it makes the patient uncomfortable. So she says, why use it? There's there's better things out there. Am I missing any? Well, yeah, the thing that always makes me, it, it's, you see, you're a nice person. I'm a nervous person. <laughs> if, if they have ileus or obstruction, they can cause megacolon, which is also bad business. So right. another good reason to not reach immediately for the lactulose. There yeah. are kinder things that work better. Yeah. She said outside of the patient with hepatic encephalopathy, she's not really using using lactulose. And I, I think that that was good news because I patients don't like it. You have to fight with them to take it a lot of the times. And milk of mag or... Or PEG is, I, I don't have patients fighting me on those ones. I think I think those are good. Every so often I have the patient asking me for lactulose and I feel some kind of way, but yeah, it's, it's not common. <laughs> I, if the patient asks you for it and they want it, I mean, these are not all like, uh, you know, black and white, hard and fast rules. I think you can, you can work with the patient. And I'm not going to start to do that now. It's... And, and the, the onset of action is another thing. The For these osmotic laxatives, they tend to be 12 to 24 hours, maybe even longer. She she times a lot of these at nighttime, especially the stimulant laxatives, Senna and Bisacodal, if people are taking them by mouth, Paul, because they, that way when they wake up in the morning, as Beth was talking about the ready, set, go stuff, your body is usually at the ready, set point in the morning. So if you take them at night, it, it sort of moves with that natural wave and, uh, and you might get better results that way. But, and those, those typically take six to 12 hours, something like that to start. So yep. it's good to take them before bed. That was super helpful. I love when we get reminded of like thinking about pharmacology when we're using yeah. drugs. <laughs> and, and then the other thing, Paul, the, the, the quickest acting is the bisacodyl suppository, which is less than an hour. And, and that makes sense as well, but just I, I hadn't really I hadn't thought about the onset of action of all these laxatives, but I think it's it's helpful to have that information in mind and to counsel the patients because if sometimes they take polyethylene glycol and they say it didn't work, and I said how long did you wait? And these two hours that's expectation counseling. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, we often forget that part about the anticipatory guidance, just sort of fire off the prescription and hope for the best. And I think that kind of counseling goes a long way. Any, um, you, any other big points you wanted to make here? Not a big point. Um, just what, as we're in enema land, um, 
There we go. There's a, a, we a spirited had, we had to discussion. mention this, this <laughs> the Emma. Milk Paul, and molasses. Paul Williams Enema. That was a <laughs> yeah, hashtag yes. we got trending from this episode. It did not trend in any way, shape, or form. There was one <laughs> there was one brave soul who mentioned the milk and molasses is, is evidently popular and the nurses appreciate it because it just smells better. Um, and then the other reminder about fleets enemas can cause significant hyperphosphatemia in patients with CKD. So just use with caution, Bree, please. Yeah, um, yeah. Because they have that, that huge sodium and phosphate concentration and the phosphate can cause nephrocalcinosis or uh, bind the calcium and change their serum calcium, cause arrhythmias potentially. It, it's theoretical, but why even risk it if you have something that yeah. smells great and works great? Milk and molasses. <laughs> right, right. If you can <laughs> have the holidays, yeah. Didn't somebody tell us that it kind of ruins like molasses cookies or something? Like don't make it when you're making molasses cookies. I don't cookies, have a lot of molasses like... in my diet, Beth. I don't know about you. So it, just, <laughs> it doesn't, it wouldn't bother me, but uh, yes. Like someone, more a Southern consideration. Someone did say that. <laughs> yeah. That, I believe that was a, one of our listeners. I think it, Jody Marks had written in about that and uh, said that, that that ruins molasses for them. So, th- so that's it. I-, I think she did mention, Paul, everyone should have some sort of a footstool at the toilet to help with the positioning, which I think is really great too. A lot of people have these really, really tall uh, toilets that just don't put them in the right position. So if you have a six or eight inch stool uh, underneath there, you can put your feet up. And I realized talking about footstools and passing stools is kind of funny, but you know, audience grow up. I mean, yeah, let's, let's be adults here. <laughs> so we should probably move on uh, unless you have anything else, Paul, to get out. <laughs> no, I think we can move on. Har, har. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by Blue Land. And audience, I'm excited to tell you about Blue Land because let me let you in on a little secret. I'm pretty freaked out about climate change. There's plastics and everything. And what I love about Blue Land is they have this simple and beautiful idea that you buy a bottle once, you refill it forever, and there's no more plastic waste. The only thing you need to discard is your outdated idea that eco-friendly products are more expensive and less effective because Blue Land is not going to break the bank and their cleaning products are very effective. Here's how it works. You fill Blue Land's beautiful bottle with warm water, Pop in one of the hand soap or spray cleaner tablets and within minutes you have powerful cleaning products in some of the most incredible scents like iris agave and lavender eucalyptus. Blue Land also makes plastic-free laundry and dishwasher tablets. They have something for every inch of your home and right now Blue Land's best-selling toilet cleaner tablets are back so get those before they sell out. As I said on a previous ad read, we use those in one of our bathrooms and our son called us in. He's like, what is that smell in here? It smells amazing in the bathroom. Yeah, it was a Blue Land toilet cleaner tablet. So try Blue Land today. You're going to love it. And the planet will thank you. Right now, you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash curb. That's 20% off your first order of any Blue Land products at blueland.com slash curb. Blueland.com slash curb. Episode number 315, Long COVID, featuring Monica Verdusco Gutierrez, produced by Avitalo Glasser and graphics by Edison Jang. And this Long COVID, Paul, there, boy, is this in the news lately. And uh, <laughs> have you been confused about the definition? That felt like a terrible stand-up bit that you were just going to have to launch into. <laughs> yeah, so how, how do we define it? Because I'm still a little bit fuzzy on long COVID versus the post-acute sequelae of COVID versus... Right. I feel like it's it's a little bit fuzzy. So what are what are we talking about? Here? My answer is, Paul, it, it seems to vary by source and it doesn't seem to matter much. Our guest gave me the same <laughs> feeling. 
If someone had COVID recently and they have symptoms that are persisting more than a couple weeks, they might be they might be in the long COVID range, and you can start to talk to them about that. This this is common. Some of these symptoms may may be hanging around, but I, I don't think it's super important to to pay too much attention to how many weeks they've had their symptoms. I think that that, that is not one of the points. Is that this is fairly common in some studies? They're saying ten to thirty percent of patients, and that the when you look at that as a worldwide population of people that are getting this, the, the numbers are really big. And one of the sad parts of that is that a lot of people that tend to get these symptoms that can be debilitating are in their prime working years. And Dr. Gutierrez did remind us that this is covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act. And some of these patients might need short-term disability. So I think that's an or FMLA I, I would just be aware of that. I think in primary care, Paul, I'm not sure if you're being having tons of paperwork to fill out for this, but I think we should if, if people need it. It's, I'm prepared to. I think we, I mean, not breaking any new ground here, but I think we're a long ways off before we start to fully appreciate the fallout from everything that's been going on. So I, I, I expect it'll probably pick up at some point, but it's not something I've had to contend too much with um, at this stage yet. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's really unprecedented in like, I mean, besides other outbreaks for like this amount of people to be infected with a new virus. So like all these kind of like post viral things so you know, we're going to be seeing what that looks like. It just it's hard to predict what we're going to see. But it's it did worry me that statistic of, you know, 10 to 30 percent of patients with COVID may have yeah. this. And I think we'll also start to see more data about, you know, it's a more mild infection versus severe versus vaccinated, unvaccinated. So Spoiler alert for this episode, I feel like, is more to come, you know, we yeah. have to kind of keep an eye on things. We did talk about the pathophysiology, but I'll be honest, there's some theories. Is it inflammatory, autoimmune? Is there still, is the autonomic nervous system getting out of whack from this? We just don't really know enough yet. I think there were some articles that talked about, could this be more of a biopsychosocial phenomenon and have a little bit of a bunch of different mechanisms going at play here? But I think the overall message from our guest was that even if you're testing for things, a lot of the tests we're used to using are not going to find anything, and we just need to validate the symptoms that the patient's having and and go along with that. Paul, has this been a major thing for you? Have you been ordering a bunch of tests on patients after COVID? I, I have not. I, I have not seen... It's tricky. I, I, I've seen COVID that has lasted way longer than you would expect it to, which I think falls into this category. So I've had patients that have just felt terrible for weeks and weeks. Um, but in terms of some of the, the residual fatigue and I think some of the autonomic stuff that I know that you're interested in talking about, I've seen less of that. But I also think that because we're still learning about it, and I think Beth, actually talking off air, we talked about using the word humble, which I, I really love. I think we have to sort of appreciate we don't know enough to know how to screen effectively for it or how to test effectively for it or even really quantify it in any kind of meaningful way just yet. So I think I just... Part of this has to be me being more open to the idea that I might be seeing longer-term sequelae and just have to be sort of considering that in the differential for anything that's kind of new, if that makes any kind of sense. Anna, are you seeing much of it? I'm seeing, I would say, more subacute symptoms. And fortunately, not a lot of my patients are progressing to long COVID where months later, I'm still really struggling to manage symptoms. I think Dr. Gutierrez had a really unique perspective because she's in a She's in a center where people are getting sent to her, and she said she tends to be seeing a lot of younger people, especially women, and that's part of why she's thinking it may be more of an autoimmune because a lot of the time autoimmune conditions uh, tend to be more common in women in that age range, but we we just don't know yet. And she mentioned she sees a lot of POTS, which is the postural tachycardia syndrome, where and the way she told us the way to diagnose it is where the patient stands up 
and the heart rate goes up more than 30 beats, but the, but they don't drop their blood pressure. So it's, it's sort of like you just get the heart rate response, but you don't get a drop in the blood pressure like you would with orthostatic hypotension. And usually that, that should happen technically within the first 10 minutes of standing. And these patients, they can have functional impairment from this. And some of the things she told us you can do for it, you can, you can do stockings, you can do abdominal binders, tell them to eat small frequent meals, and um, just be proactive about hydration. Some of the other stuff that's out there is also liberalizing salt intake. And sometimes these p- patients end up on imidadrine or fludrocortisone, things like that to just sort of, I guess, boost, boost pressures. I, I have fortunately have not been seeing a lot of this, but I thought it was it's useful to at least have something to say if I'm if I do find a patient that has this because <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not very I don't know Paul do you have you seen too much pots in your practice even before the COVID um, I think even before there's there's a chance that some of it may have gone unrecognized I think it's something that is probably underappreciated um, and often blamed on other stuff but I, I've not seen a whole ton of it recently one of the other cool things I was reading about pots is that if people are feeling we're using abdominal binders we're using stockings. The, the counter pressure maneuvers, Paul, if you remember way, way back, we talked about with syncope when people are starting to feel this near syncope lightheadedness, if they flex their muscles yep. uh, in their upper body or they squat down, that can that can increase blood flow to the brain and and help with it, which uh, I, I always love talking about counter pressure maneuvers just because I don't think they're prescribed, but it's a practical thing someone can do if they feel like they're going to pass out. And, right. and like so many things, if you give a patient something where they can take ownership of their symptoms yeah. and actually self-manage, it's it's much more powerful than you just sort of doing something for them or to them. And then another medication might be considered something like beta blockers just to mitigate, I guess, the tachycardia. But the the big symptom with this is fatigue. Beth, are you hearing a lot of patients up in Maine that are having fatigue with this? Is Have you seen much of this or heard about much? I've been mostly in the hospital this year, so I haven't seen a ton of um, the chronic fatigue. I saw like a couple of patients that had some sort of like persistent hypertension and things. I think Paul was talking about some persistent um, or like really worsening diabetes, so things like that. The fatigue, you know, we see fatigue with a lot of different things, and I think it's once again like something we're not sure what's causing it potentially. It's debilitating for folks, though. You know, whatever is going on, it's causing people to have a real functional impairment and, you know, loss of work and brain fog and things like this. So she went through a good kind of approach of following kind of the three P's. You pace, plan, prioritize. You you tell these people to, like, just take on what they can, you know, plan activities and space them out. Um, and going back to kind of the point we made earlier – you know, if folks are really feeling debilitated and cannot work, you know, being able to uh, facilitate um, disabilities paperwork for those people so that they, they can get the rest that they need if they're still in a recovery state. I think some people just need that you to take the guilt away from them to tell them that you might need to cut back, you might need to pace yourself, you might need to ask people to do things for you and uh, just give them that time to to heal or get better if they are having this more chronic fatigue. And this the CDC site actually has, there's the chronic fatigue syndrome and the myalgic encephalomyelitis, which can happen after certain, we think maybe bad infections or viral infections. And it, and it seems like a similar syndrome is happening to patients after COVID, some patients. And so a lot of these principles we're talking about, the three Ps, come from patients who have been suffering from that. And Dr. Sachs, way back when we talked to him about Lyme, he mentioned that people talking about chronic symptoms after having confirmed Lyme disease, that any really bad infection 
can leave people feeling bad for weeks, months, years. It, it just, it can happen, whatever it does to the body. We just don't understand it. I guess the last point that I wanted to make is uh, just kind of a neat thing, Paul. There's, there's some, there was a website, fifthsense.org. It's a, it's safety advice about <laughs> what to do for people who have lost their smell. Do you remember any of these, Paul? That is this something you had been counseling people about? It's again not something I've run into too too much. I, the taste disturbances have also been upsetting for some patients, but the smell stuff I've not done so much counseling. I've been waiting for the opportunity because it is fascinating to me. But stuff I haven't thought about, especially things like making sure your smoke alarms have batteries. Um, Having a trusted friend to not only smell your food but also smell you, which I mean, it sounds <laughs> I, and not and not to make light. You know, it's just, it's a serious thing, and I'm not trying to sort of uh, make light of it, but just you know, making sure that your your hygiene is on point because you lose something, and it's just not it's something that we take for granted so much um, right. that it, to have someone help you with things is, is may not be something that you're used to. So just giving someone permission and sort of advice to to do that, I thought was also interesting too. I don't know what what stuff did you like about this site? I'm sure you did the deep dive because this is how you are. No, Paul, I don't. I don't have a lot to add here. I just I just thought it was neat having a, a trusted person that's going to smell things for you, smell you, make sure that you're eating food that's safe, make sure that your hygiene is on point. And, uh, and then she talked about, and of course, this is all early. I'm sure we're going to have a lot more data on this coming forthcoming, but she talked about things like smell training with essential oils and uh, putting people on f- uh, something like a steroid nasal spray early. Uh, if they have this loss of smell, these things may help. We, we of course, don't know yet, but loss of smell has been around for a while. And these are some things that have been done for other people who had lost smell, lost smell even before COVID-19 was around. So I guess that my final point would be, she mentioned that the vaccine, some patients seems to get better. Some patients don't have a change. And it's unusual for patients to feel worse if they're having lasting symptoms from COVID. So she would still recommend vaccination, even if your patient is having long COVID symptoms. I don't think that should be a deterrent from getting patients vaccinated. Am I missing anything else, Paul, that, that you wanted to highlight? No, I, I, I think you hit the high points. It was it, an interesting episode. We're obviously very early on in trying to figure out what we're doing and, and how this is going to actually affect people moving forward. So I think yeah. we're just in the very early stages of figuring out what to do about this. Beth, any last points before we head into the outro? No last points. I think we've had some good episodes and stay tuned for more good stuff and more tales from the curbside. All right, Paul. All right. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Okay. (laughs) Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or now on Spotify. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, who also runs our Twitter. Nora Toronto is the editor for The Digest. Maddie Mad Dog Morgan is on Instagram. Tima Karganov does the website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Claire Morgan of Notterly edits our audio. And finally, Chris the Chew Manchu is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Beth Garbs Garbatelli. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye.